Shalom, shalom, friends. That's a classic uh, Rosh Hashanah uh, Nigun. Um, which is one of my favorites, actually. Uh, it's it, We would need about five minutes to get the full version of it, but it's nice to see you all today. Thank you for joining session number 19 on Hegel. On Hegel. So we're going to have a lot of fun with him today. And I'm always, always looking forward to hearing your, <clears throat> your, your ideas. And let's start with a little poll question. Um, I, I always love your answers here. How does progress emerge? Option one, primarily from prayer and spirituality. Option two, primarily from good people working hard together. Option three, primarily from conflict, tension, clashes, wars, confrontation. Option four, I don't believe in progress. All right, let's see our results here. Oh, wow. 13% think progress comes from prayer and spirituality. 63% primarily from good people working hard together. 25% from conflict such as tension, clashes, wars, confrontation. And nobody here says, I don't believe in progress. <laughs> so uh, that's interesting. All right, friends, here we go. That is one of many issues we're going to look at today. Are polarized arguments inherently bad? How do human values advance? What is the relationship between the real and the ideal? George Wilhelm Frederick Hegel was engaged in numerous fields of philosophy, though he can be placed firmly in the camp of German idealism, which emerged as a major response to the Enlightenment. Beginning with Immanuel Kant, German idealism aspired to use reason to grasp the world as human beings placed within it. Rather than rely on only on science, it recognized that human history, culture, and religion were to play a major role alongside reason in making sense of human existence. Though famous for its difficulty, German idealism sought to address the most pressing political and ethical questions about what it meant to be a human being in the modern world. A major theme in nearly all of Hegel's writings is the question of freedom. Unlike earlier Enlightenment thinkers who thought of freedom as a natural right of human beings, Hegel asserted that reason and freedom are not given to us automatically but are things that are achieved in history. One cannot find freedom simply by running off into the woods and meditating, according to Hegel. It is something that must be reached through historical progress. People, according to Hegel, were not created knowing how to be reasonable or free. Instead, the story of humanity is one of marching toward better ways to think and live. For Hegel, progress in human history is achieved through dialectics. Dialectics, as defined by Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, is a term used to describe a method of philosophical argument that involves some sort of contradictory process 
between opposing sides. Our social, intellectual, and political world is constantly filled with contradictions, and those clashes lead to the development of history. In this model, a dialectic consists of a thesis and an antithesis, and the clash between them results in a synthesis. Hegel uses the example of the state and the individual, which appear to exist in conflict with one another. The tension between them, the state and the individual, though, is what eventually leads political life from a monarchy to representative government. Conflicts such as these enable the development of human, social, and political life. And as humanity progresses, the old syntheses become the new theses and antitheses, and the dialectical process continues to play out. Right, so one clash ends between thesis and antithesis, and a synthesis emerges. But it's not like whoop de doo, we achieved utopia. Now this new um, synthesis beca- becomes a thesis, and then a, and then a, a conflict emerges, and a, and a new form of truth emerges, or a new progress emerges, and it's a constant dialectic. It's in the realm of ideas, it's in the realm of societal structures, it's in the realm of everything that's a part of chayim, everything that's a part of life is a part of this flow, this flow um, in intention. Um, and only shortly shortly after resolution is there kind of a new tension that emerges. But dialectics can also work in the realm of the more abstract. Hegel examines the thesis of pure being and the antithesis of nothingness. The synthesis he finds is becoming, right? What What is the human being? Are we pure being? Are we nothing, no thing? And in that clash, there is a process of becoming. And that's true for divinity as well. Is God something? Is God nothing? Is God in a process of becoming? This sounds very much like the Jewish idea of God as revealed in the Torah to Moshe. At the burning bush, Moshe asks God for God's name so he can tell the Israelites who spoke to him. God answers cryptically, asher I will be what I will be. Meaning God is nothing. God is no thing. God is a process of becoming. God, we see from both the Torah and a parallel in Hegel, is not strictly a being, and God is not nothing, no thing either, but the product of the tensions between both, between both becoming describes God much better. God lives in progress, in potentiality, rather than in actualization. As an idealist, Hegel gave much thought to what he called spirit. For Hegel, everything from our inner depths of consciousness to our outward political battles is all part of a single spirit, a single mind, a single dimension. Hegel seems to be a monist instead of recognizing a distinction between the physical and what lies beyond it. Hegel held that everything is spirit, right? Just a reminder, um, Descartes, dualist, right? There's mind and there's body, right? Monist says, no, everything is one. And according to Spinoza, if you recall, he's a monist of a materialism. He's a materialist. For, for Spinoza, there's no spirit. It's just physicality. Well, that's complicated, actually. But let's just say that. Let's just say it, because it's mostly 
associate right. But for Hegel, um, we're going to see everything is spirit. While for Kant, was Kant last week? No, Kant was two weeks ago. Consciousness and ethical truths were in another unchanging realm. Hegel saw spirit as existing in this world, right? Kant sees spirit as otherworldly. Oh, okay, this, that's like when people talk about heaven and earth. This is the world, world of physicality. Then there's the world of souls, right? Kant's on board with that. Hegel says, uh-uh, consciousness and eternal truths, the, the realm of spirit is in this world. Thus, it was not immovable, but dynamic. And because everything in spirit is interconnected, to Hegel, we're not creating progress through dialectics. We're not creating progress, but revealing connections within the universe that, in a sense, already exist. Uh, so we might say, oh, there's no progress. I create progress, right? But rather, it's already there, and we are revealing it, in a sense. But at the same time, for Hegel, we cannot know the outcome of a dialectic until it has occurred. When one looks at human history, one sees spirit undergoing a variety of forms and transformation. You can guess in the chat who that is, which Hegel believed to be different stages of human consciousness throughout history. Yes, we progress slowly, but there are also revolutionary moments in which we can have a paradigm shift. That change can emerge from whole society, but it can also occur as the result of an inspired individual. Hegel believed Napoleon was one of them. And such a person might not even be aware that the political changes they usher in may cause a historical leap of human consciousness. It's funny. Think about how you think of Napoleon. And then in this artwork, if you look at this face, how you think of like somebody you met in college or something. You know what I mean? It's like, anyways, though Hegel was a German Lutheran, his dialectical approach to God and human history is similar to Kabbalah, to Kabbalah a topic that was of interest to him. Like in Kabbalah, Hegel conceives of God as more of a dynamic process than as a static being. Kabbalistic thinkers who preceded Hegel, such as the Ramchal, Rav Moshe Chaim Zado, saw this process taking place not with regards to the spherot in the heavenly realm, right? these 10 spherot here, <clears throat> but in the human history as well, right? So um, some Kabbalists, like many mystics, think that what we're doing in our intentionality, in our spiritual practice, is changing the upper worlds, right? We're affecting God. We're changing the cosmos, right? But what Hegel thinks as a mystic is that we are changing this world. We are influencing history through our mystical practice, right? That's kind of like tikkun olam. For the, for, the, for the mystics versus tikkun olam for the activists. Tikkun olam for the mystics were gathering up the sparks of the broken shvirat, the brokenness from shvirat akelim, from, from the, um, the cosmic ruptures of oneness, right? But for tikkun olam for the activists, we're, we're, we're changing history through this. Of course, some might try to bring these two together. Now, by putting human action at the center of history, Hegel is at the same time humbling us. Because the nature of consciousness evolves, we must know that we're by and large stuck in the consciousness of our time. 
As Hegel famously said, the owl of Minerva only flies at dusk. By this, he meant that we can only use reason to fully grasp a form of life and consciousness after it has ceased to be. As a result, humans are inevitably and essentially products of history. Many of us might think of ourselves as transcending that, right? It's, it's, it's fun to critique thinkers of the past, critique, critique rulers of the past, as if they know what we know. And it's fun to think that in 100 years from now, those who consider themselves woke today would still be considered woke 100 years from now. Whether you like woke or don't like woke, we won't go there, right? But the whole idea of like, oh, my ideas are going to be beloved in 200 years from now as well, right? Um, but once you put things in writing, you open yourselves to critique not only of your day, but beyond. And so um, Hegel thought we can't transcend that. Like we are bound by our time period in how we think about the world. Interesting enough, part of the project of Torah or of being a spiritualist, you might say, is trying to do exactly that. Break free of the thinking of your day, right? You learn timeless wisdom you engage in the eternal, you engage in spiritual practices that remove you from the ebb and flow, right? To tap into something much deeper. The ultimate goal of history for Hegel is to bring human consciousness to a state of absolute spirit. That is the point at which our work is complete. Rather than feeling alienated from the world and from each other, Absolute spirit means our use of reason combined with the right social and political structures will enable a form of consciousness that enables us to recognize the way we are bound to the state and those we live beside. So this is so interesting. Some people think progress, what does it look like? Getting the right politicians in, having the right judges in, passing the best legislation, right? Enlightened form of democracy, right? that progress means it's about the state, how we achieve, think about Marx, Marx's form of messianism, right? When we achieve a form of economic justice, a political, a new political structure, that's the kind of progress we want. For spiritualists, progress is about humanity and all life living with an elevated spiritual consciousness of oneness, of empathy, of interconnectivity, of kindness, that we have achieved a level of character, character development, that humanity is flourishing on an individual level that connects to a oneness of all humanity, right? It's a spiritual revolution, not a political revolution. Hegel wants both. So let me say that line again. Rather than feeling alienated from the world and from each other, absolute spirit for Hegel means our use of reason, what we achieve in our inner world, combined with the right social and political structures that will then enable a form of consciousness that enables us to recognize that we are bound to the state and those we live beside. And so it's a dynamic flow, the social structures, the political structures, and the individual consciousness. Here's what he writes in Phenomenology of Spirit. History is a conscious, self-mediating process. It is spirit emptied out into time. <clears throat> so here we could uh, we could say we could put Hegel's face up as our logo of Valley Bait Madrash, right? We could say, what is Valley Bait Madrash about? We are about um, learning and action, right? We want internal revolution and we want change in the real world. 
So at this point, we could say Hegel is like he's he is a good um, poster poster person. That yes, there's political activists out there. It's not what we're doing. There's spiritualists out there. That's what we're doing. We want to bring together the, the inner life and the outer life. And so reality itself is inextricably intertwined with history. This, like Judaism, implies that there is an extreme amount of importance to our actions, right? Rather than diminish the weight of the individual impact, <coughs> individual human actions have increased importance. Hegel is known as having set the intellectual roots for German social welfare. In this regard, there is a connection between him and Karl Marx. We'll get to Marx later. Marx, like Hegel, is not merely describing historical processes, but saying freedom needs to keep being actualized. Hegel wanted to set free the spirit of the universe, and Marx sought to break the chains of the working class. Beyond Hegel's view of the progress of humanity in the world, which Jews can just about wholeheartedly sign on to, we can see parallels between Hegel's thought and Judaism throughout. Hegel sees human reason and freedom developing through dialectics. And all of rabbinic history shows Jewish law developing through machloket, through productive argument, right? Judaism, as, as viewed through the Talmudic lens, is not about agreement, but disagreement. And, and interesting enough, one theory of disagreement is that we lost the truth, and so the rabbis are disagreeing on what it actually was, and each view is mutually exclusive because we don't know what's true. The other view is different views, debate was built into the system as an ideal. That is to say, it's not that one of them is right and one of them is wrong because we lost the truth and we have to follow. Yes, we have to follow one of them, but, uh, but actually multiplicity of ideas, multiplicity of views was built into the Jewish ethos as part of the divine plan as opposed to a recovery model of truth, this is a productive model of truth. Similar to what Hegel's saying, through that debate and, and disagreement, newer truths will then emerge. Jews would agree with Hegel that new revelations are not a threat, but an indicator or movement toward a better world. The difference between them is that Hegel's analysis of history showed one form of life being replaced by another, right? It's violent. Hegel's violent. What, the past is killed off in form of a new progressive ideal, right? Judaism doesn't want to kill the past. It wants to preserve the thesis and antithesis when the synthesis emerges rather than kill it off. And so um, Judaism, however, as I just mentioned, believes the Torah is eternal. And while the application of the law might change and advance through dialectics, the essence of the Torah does not. Right? Take, for example, something that seems barbaric in the Torah. Right? I'm sure we can all think of some, some examples of such things. <laughs> and then we see the rabbis fix it. They, they fix it. I say, oh, you were worried about problem X in the Torah? Don't worry. Like, this is what it really means and how we really apply it today. Right. They don't say they don't diminish it and say, no, that was a that was a wrong verse. That's an evil verse. They say, oh, that verse, as it emerged and as it progressed in, in, in history, it this new reality emerged. And through this clash, the verse is actualized in a new way. It's actualized in a, or it's it's paused for the future. 
right? Even though we don't do animal sacrifices anymore, few of us want to in this Zoom room, although there's plenty of Jews in, in the world who still want to, um, we don't just erase those verses or stop reading them. They are part of this reinterpretive journey. Um, you know, the parts that we might feel are misogynist or we feel, you know, are a little harsh towards the LGBTQ community or, um, you know, seem to not jive with our sense of economic justice today. Right. We don't we, again, we don't just erase them, but they're a part of a living of a living revelatory and interpretive hermeneutical process. So Rav Cook, who's pictured here, especially agreed with this. Like some rabbis in his time, he took a Hegelian approach to history, which held that conflict in new eras is good as it produces more enlightened truths. When tradition and modernity clash, that's not a problem. That's an opportunity. When Jewish theology rooted in diaspora living clashed with Zionism, it was a chance to synthesize to something new and revitalize the Torah. Furthermore, when reason and revelation clash, you don't just choose a side, according to him. You allow them to bring you to a new place. For example, Rob Cook felt that even biblical criticism and even atheism can lead one to a more enlightened knowledge of the Torah and of God. He took ideas that many people in his world shunned. He said, biblical criticism, humans, not God, wrote the Torah. Atheism, you reject God. He says, no, no, don't reject those ideas. Look at it. And in the clash of your traditionalism, with those new ideas, you're going to get to a higher place. Don't be afraid of outside ideas. Don't be afraid of the clash between ideas that seem to be threatening your way of life. They may actually help you to advance if you engage with them. So it's a, it, 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 it's a model of, and that's part of his mysticism also, is that because there's some truth in everything and some truth in everyone, those clashes can be really productive. Um, okay, second, much like the way Hegel sees spirit progressing and along with it, the human conception of God progressing, we too recognize a progression of how the divine is revealed through different eras. In the Exodus story, we're virtually taken by the hand of a God who splits the Red Sea, right? We don't live in that world anymore. At least I don't. Maybe other people do. For the Jews of that time, God exists as an absolute power to whom they must submit. However, by the time of the stories of Esther and Hanukkah, much later, God's presence is either much more hidden or completely hidden. And now in our time, responsibility for justice rests in human hands more than ever before. And we cannot ignore that Hegel's thought feels closely related to Kabbalah. Yes, we experience light and darkness in the world, but we must see that they are all part of one whole. As with Hegel, dialectical opposites cannot exist without each other, and therefore both are necessary. Their unity is played out in a dynamic conflict that moves us toward an ideal world. So friends, it is true, however, that in Judaism, we do accept that there are some ideas and eternal truths 
that can be held outside the context of history. There are eternal truths, such as that of justice, that are accessible throughout time in some cases. On the other hand, there's certainly Jewish ideas about justice that evolve over time. Most certainly, consider the notion that an eye for an eye is, is re-engaged by the rabbis to only entail financial compensation, right? We don't poke out eyes. We keep that verse, an eye for an eye, but the rabbis interpret it as meaning if you poke someone's eye out, then you're going to have to pay the damages. Consider the evolution of the status of women in Jewish law, which um, progressed throughout history, but most certainly throughout recent decades. And the most lasting progress has not been people who said, ah, I dismiss, I dismiss the misogyny of Judaism. I want to do it my way. I don't care what Judaism says. They were people who said, Judaism wants this. This is what it says in our time. So friends, to conclude, whereas for Hegel, absolute spirit can be achieved only at the end of history, Jews believe God's oneness has always existed and is available to us in every moment. If only we must open ourselves up to its true reality. So, um, wow, lots to talk about with Hegel here. Before we open it up, I want to read you one thing. Um, in in regards to this conversation that um, Ed, that our friend Ed Awata brought up last week, I, I want to read something I found um, in regards to this relationship between philosophy throughout time and religion. And some other folks were talking about this here as well. Um, you know, and we talked about these three approaches. And of course, there's more. But the three general approaches I laid out of religious establishments, religious thinkers that rejected philosophy as an outside dangerous force, those who used it to enhance their um, religious thinking, as we saw with Rub Cook here, he uses Hegel to advance his own Kabbalistic thinking. And those who use it to justify. Now, <laughs> I want to read you something from Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Um, he Heschel is known in a bunch of ways, if that name doesn't ring a bell right away. He is known as the rabbi who marched next to Martin Luther King. He is known, at, or, or one of the rabbis, I should say. Um, uh, 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 Joachim Prince was another kind of prominent one uh, involved in that. Um, he was also known as a great um, poetic writer about the prophets. Here's what he writes in um, his intro, page four of his work, God in Search of Man, right? Which is to say, it's not that humans are seeking God, but God is seeking us. In our quest for forgotten questions, the method and spirit of philosophical inquiry are of greater importance than theology which is essentially descriptive, normative, and historical. Philosophy may define as the art of asking the right questions. One of the marks of philosophical thinking is that in contrast to poetry, for example, it's not a self-sufficing pouring forth of insight, but the explicit statement of a problem and the attempt to answer, to offer an answer to a problem. Theology starts with dogmas, Philosophy begins with problems, right? That's why a lot of traditional um, religious thinkers preferred theology to philosophy. Theology reaffirms dogmas. Philosophy starts with the problems, with those very dogmas and ideas. Philosophy sees the problem first. 
theology has the answer in advance. And theology says, here's what I need to get. Now let me explain to you how I'm going to get there. Philosophy starts with the problem. <laughs> we must not, however, disregard another important difference. Not only are the problems of philosophy not identical with the problems of religion, their stator is not the same. Philosophy is, in a sense, a kind of thinking that has a beginning but no end. In the awareness of the problem outlives all solutions. Its answers are questions in disguise. Every new answer giving rise to new questions. In religion, on the other hand, the mystery of the answer hovers over all the questions. Philosophy deals with problems as universal issues. To religion, the universal issues are personal problems. Philosophy then stresses the primacy of the problem. Religion stresses the primacy of the person. The, fu the fundamentalists claim that all ultimate questions have been answered already. Right? You just got to go to the past and you'll get the answers. The logical positivists maintain that all ultimate questions are meaningless. Those of us who share neither the conceit of the former nor the unconcern of the latter and reject both specious and false evasions know that an ultimate issue is at stake in our existence, the relevance of which surpasses all final formulations. It is this embarrassment that is the starting point of our thinking. Okay, I know that's long-winded. If you want that, email me and I'll send it to you. But um, I think it's a little helpful for the project we're involved with, that those of us who are are interested in religion, we may feel the answers are are, are kind of set for us. And that's okay. You, you may say, um, I, I'm already committed. I'm already committed that they're, you know, I'm an atheist or this is what God looks like, or this is what God looks like, or here is what morality is. I'm set. Right. Um, and there's a power to that. And yet the, the role of philosophy is to say none of that is set. And so th that clash between the comfort of what we know and what the answers we already want set and raising the problem. We can't just live in a world of problems. We would just be academics. We'd have no meaning to live with, right? But we also can't just live in the answers. There would be no more seeking. And so that's kind of an interesting dynamic flow between being a religious or spiritual person and being a um, engaged in the philosophical work. We want to strive for new. We want to seek. We want to challenge. But we also want to live with a certain level of spiritual meaning each day. So we want to live with some answers. Okay, that was very long-winded. Let me pause there, friends. I would love to uh, hear from you um, and have some conversation. Hi, Aglaia. Okay, I was trying to keep quiet. I really was trying to keep quiet today, though, so just for the record. Um, but um, I was just going to, like, throw this out there for you. Um, would you, if you're not interested in this, this is fine, um, but um, Hegel's um, master-slave dynamic versus Martin Buber, um, I versus I don't know if you want to go into that. Can you want to share with the groups a little more of your thinking? Okay. So Hegel's reacting. Okay. I'm sorry. Unfortunately, I Hegel's another love-hate relationship. Sorry. But um, Hegel um, reacting to the Haitian Revolution, you know, a lot of it. His idea of the master-slave dynamic is that it ultimately becomes a struggle to the death between, you know, whoever, you know, is the, there are two individuals 
one, you know, they're seeking to dominate each other. One actually ends up dominating the other, but then in the process becomes completely dependent on the one that they dominated. And so because of this, though, there's this struggle to the death that's going to ensue because the one who has been dominated is going to start realizing, wait a minute, this is benefiting from me. And my labor is one that, you know, is doing everything. This needs me more than I need him. So in other words, though, it will result in a struggle to the death. Martin Buber, on the other hand, is writing in the 1920s after World War I. And he's got this kind of um, idea that um, when you've got people, the I versus thou, there's a sort of, um, I guess, um, relationship that, you know, the relationship that um, forms between the two of them. And this is a relationship that, um, you know, leads to, okay, you think positively about this person. So I don't know if you wanted to go into that at all or not. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I leave that to others to engage with you. I think it's a fast, thank you for bringing that up, Aglaia. Yeah, the, the master-slave dialectic is a fascinating one. Um, and I love the way you fleshed it out so clearly for us, actually. Um, so if folks are interested in going there, um, we welcome that as well. Yeah, this, this, as these power struggles, what these power struggles look like and how the, the struggle is maintained even as the dynamic shifts. Thank you. Okay, why is everyone so shy today? I'm sure I'm sure they will reemerge when they <laughs> Okay, I can throw out another question, a different question if you wanted to. Let's give folks a minute. We'll see we'll see. I, I think I think maybe they're thinking. Hi Ed. Yeah, I'm thinking. Um, <laughs> but it's more like uh thank you for explaining this because um in any of the readings I have of Hegel I don't understand. I have more questions. Um so I appreciate this kind of brief recap from your perspective. The thought, though, that comes to mind for me is um, more related to putting history in perspective to right now. And today, as I walked out to get my coffee and come back, I met a person vacationing in the area. And turns out that today is his birthday. So I asked him about 9-11. And he gave me his perspective uh, of that. He wasn't involved, but um, I've had other things that sort of remind me of what you have recapped about Hegel. And that is you kind of have this conflict um, that gets somehow resolved like a, a pendulum or, you know, there, there's, there's some sort of war or conflict going on. And having sort of been in all of that in the 60s, I sort of see that playing out. And um, I guess I just want to say, you know, thank you for sort of that recap that says we've got to go through this conflict. Um, but one of them that I've had kind of to deal with is uh, I wasn't involved in 9-11, yet I have some friends who were uh, firefighters or EMTs or uh, involved in the rescue and, in fact, work for a police department that have a complete different, you know, take on um, the reaction to 9-11. And so I, I end up being quiet about it because I don't have those connections. Until now, uh, I'm seeing that my reaction is, I hope, 
becoming more of a synthesis of all of these, um, what, opinions, experiences. And so I like sort of your recap of Hegel, um, and particularly when it comes to how do I honor or remember those who have passed away or were involved in the rescue and passed away or the witnesses that saw this all and the trauma. Uh, and then I see a couple of stories that come about uh, where people have received text messages from people in the top floors uh, realizing that their fate is pretty well set and they are now contacting relatives or loved ones and their final words are, I love you. As though this is really the most important part of what they're about. And it, it sort of helps me to understand that all my questions and conflicts kind of get synthesized in some of these stories that you don't hear about when you first experience it, but over time they come out. And I guess my whole view or opinion of what I can do or what I should do um, kind of evolves, changes mm -hmm. to the point that I say, you know, I have a question about this and I'm seeking the answer that I now say that the answer is only going to be the next level of questions. Mm. And I actually like that. Um, so I just, I just want to say thank you for kind of clearing that up for me anyway. <laughs> I'm still confused. If I ever read any of Hegel's stuff, I, I, I get totally confused. So uh, thank you. I love that, Ed. And just that uh, there's so much you said, which I won't pick up on. But um, but th first of all, thank you for bringing up 9/11 and our and our our learning today can be in honor of um, you know the 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 victims and the survivors with 9/11. So thank you for bringing that up, um, and also for bringing up that last point as well. That yes, the goal is not to just remain in the same questions forever, but the the questions to get better, the questions to evolve, the questions to change but never to be questionless in a sense. So I, so I, I love the way you put that. <clears throat> you know, and another good clash, I mean, we used to talk, we talked a, a lot more about the clash of kind of Western Christianity or Western liberalism and re fundamentalist Islam. We talked more about that like 10 years ago or like 15 years ago than we do today. But that is one of the major global clashes that still exists today, most certainly. Um, and as thinking in the spirit of 9-11, of essentially a West that wants the world to look like the West and essentially an, uh, a fundamentalist Islam that wants the world to look like a fundamentalist Islam. Um, and those two large forces are still very much in tension in the world today. And um, there's people who want one to win and one to just be destroyed. But by and large, I think we most of us understand that there, that tension is actually going to lead, could lead to a next evolution in some sense in you know in in and that's not just the weakening or strengthening of a power dynamic 
it's also kind of a, a cultural war in a sense. Um, and so anyways, Ed, thank you for that. And, um, uh, and may your questions always continue to grow and advance. Yeah, they will. So one, one thing that may have not been completely clear, but just to kind of flesh out again, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just seeing now that uh, I'll say that then I'll see, see something I wrote. I saw in the chat, which is that the main barometer of, of progress for Hegel is freedom. It is it is freedom that um, of how we might measure that other people are going to take Hegelian thought and use something else. They might use equality or the like. And so one of the questions we've talked about in the past, but we might look at again is. How do you measure progress? What does progress ultimately look like? Um, and forget, forget even global progress. You might say, what does it look like for humanity to progress? Um, and, and at Rosh Hashanah time, this is a good time to ask that question, the rebirth of humanity. You know, what what do we want the, the new year to look like for humanity? In a sense. But we can ask it just for ourselves. If we're engaged in teshuva, if we're reflecting on the high holidays of what we want to look like in the coming year, what does progress look for our, look like for me? Right. Um, do I believe in the possibility of change for myself? And if so, what process do I need to undergo to achieve that next, next level of understanding, whether it's a it's an intellectual change, it's a behavioral change, it's an affective or spiritual change. Right. Do I believe in that? And when it worked for me in the past, what did that look like? Now, sometimes we progress because society tells us we did. You're in eighth grade and you and you graduate. So you're like, I'm a high schooler now. Then you get a college diploma. Maybe you become a doctor, right? You you get some paper that tells you you're a different person. You get married, right? You're Somebody dies in your family. You have a paper that tells you something is different. Something happened outside of us in a sense. But what does it look like for a progress within us as opposed to just a documented paper? All right, so I'm going to go to something just before we go to Lauren Blatt over there, something Steve wrote over there. Does the ongoing process of becoming imply no beginning? Or was there a time when we were not becoming? Yes, and I appreciate Aglaia's response over there. So yeah, this is an interesting, a really interesting question that Steve has of does becoming imply some beginning? And of course, it depends what we're referring to here. Um, going back to the Greeks, the Greeks rejected kind of a beginning. Uh, the world is eternal. Um, then comes kind of Western religion and, and believes in kind of a creation, the notion of beginnings. Rosh Hashanah is a belief in beginnings, um, in a sense. And so becoming, one might say, is actualized through the potential of beginnings. Human beings love new beginnings. We love to start a new book. Right. We love the start of a new year. Right. We love something at the very beginning stage of it. Right. There's something there's something that it awakens in us. Right. Uh, something where I, I shouldn't. Of course, not everybody's the same. But by and large, I mean, some people get anxiety with new beginnings, of course. Right. But by and large, there's a phenomenon that new beginnings are exciting. And so people are longing for things that have beginnings. A new book, a new film, a new relationship a new account, a new a new something that gives me that sense of novelty. Um, and yet, um, that the beginnings are in some ways artificial constructions. They're constructs that give us meaning in a process of becoming. 
there's this stage of becoming and I want to feel like something is changing. Something is concrete. Something could haunt you. Oh, it's a new beginning. Right. And so think about Simchat Torah. We, we, we don't just say, oh, we finish the Torah, start again. Right. We have this whole celebration of Simchat Torah. We, we celebrate the conclusion and then we re-celebrate this whole new beginning. Think about anniversaries and birthdays. Right. We have all these ways of celebrating um, these types of, of, of beginnings. And so, um, and, and and I think part of that is the sense that um, that becoming becomes more meaningful when we have these ways of of injecting these milestones, these these signs that there's a trajectory. Um, okay. So, anyways, Lauren, over to you. Hi. Just going back to your question of uh, progress within the self. So that's really, as I see it, and of course, we're really involved with it, but it's a year, it's a year after year ongoing process of tikkun midot or tikkun nefesh. And I think the main thing that anybody has to ask themselves, and actually in the world we need to ask themselves is, what will this do to others? If I do this, what will the effect be on others? So it could be what you say. Are you going to say something that's going to really hurt the other person or ruin their day? Maybe better to say nothing. Um, if we don't work on climate change, look at the wildfires this year. The effect it had, people losing homes. Um, the entire town of Yellowknife had to be evacuated because of wildfires in the Yukon. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. And around the world. So Every action that we, we do, um, we have to really, really think, what will this do to others and, and look at that consequence before we act in any way. That's that's it. And Thank you. Thank you, Lauren, um, for that Musar for us, that 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 learning about um, what our lives could look like if we thought about those consequences and worked on the tikkun amidot based upon not just our intentions, but how our, how our actions are affecting others. Um, you know, and picking up on that notion of teshuva today, before we go to Sarah, um, to think a little bit about, I know we've been calling it paradox, but for today, let's call it a dialectical tension between kind of the parts of ourselves we feel are not changing and the parts of ourselves of what we think we can become. Like that part that we accept. I think about accepting ourselves and think about also dreaming of what we can be and then looking at a clash there and what emerges. If I say to myself, I am perfect. And then I say to myself, I am imperfect. If I say to myself, I am enough. And then I say to myself, I can be better. And in the clash of acceptance of self and potentiality of self, in a clash between holding my light and my darkness, my virtues and my vices, my light and my shadow, right? How can I hold all of that? And and to some degree with harmony, but the harmony is only achieved through the full actualization of the clash, allowing that tension to emerge as such. And so, um, and going back to Lauren's point, there's the self and there's the other. The other has their needs. I have my needs, but in the clash of those needs, how can more empathy emerge ultimately? Okay, Sarah, hi. Hi. So um, what I asked 
and the follow-up to Steve's question was, so if becoming in this ongoing dialectic is the synthesis, then whether it's the remaining the same is the antithesis or whether it's the erosion, the entropy, the disappearing is the antithesis. Where is this, the synthesis in the middle? What, where are we? If indeed this dialectic is forever and ongoing, is it then, especially interior, is that spirit? What, where are we in this, in this challenging space? Um, I love the notion of my constantly, every day becoming. And I love the fact that today is the 25th and our universe has once again begun. We are again here and we are beginning this process. So that's the becoming is exquisite, but there has to be, I imagine, an antithesis. And where does that take us? Very nice. Thank you for pointing out that it's the 25th of Elul. Um, yeah, that's very nice. Um, yeah, and I don't have any answers to Sarah's great questions. I think they're questions we can all sit with. Um, you know, um, where am I in all of this? And um, yeah, and and I love the way you phrase it also, this, this kind of eroding or disappearing um, in this realm of synthesis, where do we find ourselves um, in that realm of spirit, ultimately? I love that. Um, okay, Aglaia, back to you. Okay, just to throw this out there, synthesis is not exactly like it doesn't have to be in the middle. So synthesis actually can happen like just, throw, okay, bear with me on this, but synthesis can actually be um, a part of the process of the thesis and antithesis actually realizing that they are actually the same. So synthesis can be something that's completely like unthought of. So I don't know if that's like helpful to your question and everything though, but in that case, so becoming and eroding are actually going to be the same in their own way. Because, well, you know, like if you're becoming, there's a transformation going. If you're eroding, there's a transformation going. So therefore, you know, at this point, though, is it a question of becoming or eroding? And you have the synthesis of, well, maybe it's just about transforming, which is neither becoming nor eroding, but it is also a process of both of them. So I don't know if that's helpful. There or anything though, but it's um spirit coming spirits um you know thing is that it's a constant, you know, constant process anyway that humans are always going through anyway until we actually get to that point, but we're not anywhere near that point anyway. So I don't know. Um Hegel can be, I'm not gonna I never subject my students to the way this man writes either. So anyway, though. So in a in a cocoon, thinking someone was dying rather than about to be give birth to this butterfly it's almost like there's this there's this times we think we're dying you know in our bodies but actually we're just becoming on this new level of spirit and boy i mean if if, if we could think of aging in this way um so much of our sense of becoming these days is so much around uh physicality 
um, and this kind of sense that I'm becoming more limited, right? Um, I'm dying in a sense, but rather this actualization is emerging. Um, so Eddie writes, does Hegel have anything to say of folks using any means necessary in the name of progress? Well, this 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 is a fascinating question. So my, my, my short answer is I don't know. Um, you know, I, I I am I am not a scholar of any one of these uh, thinkers. Can I answer, can I answer I think that about question? them kind of at large? Yeah, just one just one second, Glia. Um, but so my, my my first answer to any really big technical question is I don't know because on any answer, almost um, every scholar of that thinker generally disagrees because <laughs> there's so many ways to read these people. Um, and so there's conflicting views on Hegel on this point in regards to violence and the like. That said, this this question that Eddie's raising before we go to Aglaia is one that is emerging in German intellectuals as it as it's going to relate to Darwin, um, as it's going to relate to Nietzsche and power. This notion of the stronger beating out the weak when there's a clash and the strong beat the weak. Is that good? Because it's evolution. It's progress, right? And we want progress where the strong beats the weak because we want to be stronger. Or is that bad because the weak are destroyed and we care about compassion for the weak? And that's going to be an ongoing debate still today. People don't talk about it in these terms where, I mean, I mean, some people do, but not. it's not so common today to, to say the strong should beat the weak. The weak, the weak should be crushed. I mean, there's, there's people in, like boxing, we talk like that, you know, or they're like, or the way we talk about our enemies and the way we threaten enemies, right? But generally, there's a sense that the weak should be accounted for, there should be some compassion, and that by showing compassion to the weak, we're not um, morally wrong, as opposed to the approach that says, no, the weak have to die off. You know, I was listening to an entomologist yesterday, and the entomologist was talking about insects. And, and one of the questions I was asking him was, you know, is there compassion among insects? Is compassion. If if you if you try to help the weak insect, like you're you're killed off. Like you need to demonstrate only strength. Ultimately, now there's a, there was there's a lot more to unpack there, but that sense in nature of the strong versus the weak, and so. But how does that look in terms of ethics? Okay, Aglaia, do you want to weigh in on, on how you want to, how you think Hegel would answer um, Eddie's Eddie's point? Hegel would answer Eddie's point as he doesn't have, like, he has a serious problem with that idea, actually. Because, all right, so he's going to, like, look at the French Revolution, and the short version of it is, though, is that he was extremely disappointed in the French Revolution. He had all this hope for it at first about bringing about, you know, progress and all of this other stuff, and then basically they completely effed it up with, Okay, you know, and his the way that he blamed it, he blamed it on the fact that the French had not gone through the Protestant Re Reformation before they actually tried to have a bourgeois revolution and everything. Just bear with me, okay? He didn't say bourgeois revolution, but the thing is, is that his problem was is that the French tried to go too fast. And so because they had not actually rationalized Christianity by becoming a bunch of Lutherans, they completely botched the entire thing and it turned out to be a huge disappointment. And so Hegel actually warns people against doing dumb stuff like this. So he's actually like pretty much, I mean, I know you're going to get into like some people later on who are going to say like, well, people do have the right to do whatever they can to achieve progress. But Hegel's definitely not going to be on that side of the whole thing. So I'm really sorry about, you know, like jumping in on this, stuff, but it was something that I did have to study at one point. So great. Yeah, great. Thanks. Yeah. Great. So um, 
so we're left with some really powerful questions today, and especially those of us observing Rosh Hashanah to think about this week of what is the world we want to build? Um, and what is the person I want to become? And how do I view that not just as linear, but as dynamic and flowing and and that the tensions themselves can be incredibly productive. Um, and yet I don't in the coming year, uh, according to, to the, uh, many of these Jewish thinkers in response to Hegel, want to kill my past self. I don't want to bury my past self. I want to keep it alive in relationship to my to my new process of becoming as well. I want to hold my three-year-old self and my 12-year-old self and my 40-year-old self and my 60-year-old self. I want to hold them because they're a part of me. I don't want to kill them off as I seek to become someone new as well. So I wish everyone a Shana Tova. Next week, we are going to look at Mill, John Stuart Mill, and um, a very different flavor than, than Hegel. And um, I hope Hegel wasn't too uh, abstract today. Hopefully we were able to pull something out of this. And may the memories of all those at 9-11 continue to be a blessing. And may we continue to build a more safe and less violent world of understanding and of tolerance. God bless.